If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 36. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 596, Isaiah 36. And chapters 36 to 39, they, they mark a change in the genre of the book of Isaiah. For the last 29 chapters, the genre has been prophecy in a poetic form. And these chapters that we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks, 36 through 39, the genre shifts from poetic to historical narrative. And in these chapters, we are given history. In fact, we read here parallels what we read in, in uh, books of Second Kings and Second Chronicles. It's almost word for word. So let me just do a little recap of where we are historically in, in, in the book of Isaiah, in our study of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah was written during the reign of the kings of Judah, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. They were kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And the prophecy is addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah. And the first six verses, or uh, six, first six chapters that we looked, these are an introduction to the book. They state the general state of apostasy that we find in the southern kingdom. And they warn, they warn of a, of a coming judgment. In chapter 6, this is Isaiah's commission. This is where Isaiah is given the vision of God sitting in the temple. And the, the train of his robe is, is filling the temple. And Isaiah is, is completely undone by this vision. He cries out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips among a nation of unclean lips. But God takes an angel. He has an angel. He goes and gets a coal out of the altar where the sacrifice was burned. And he takes this coal and he touches the lips of Isaiah. And Isaiah's lips are cleansed. And this symbolizes the atonement for Isaiah's sin. And this is pointing toward the atonement in Christ. This is pointing toward the cross. And once cleansed by God, Isaiah is now ready. He is now willing to be sent as God's prophet. He says, here I am. Send me. In chapter 7, this is another narrative section, and this gives us a very important historical anchor in the book of Isaiah. And if you remember in chapter 7, King Ahaz is, is facing a crisis, and this crisis is an attack. There's an attack by, by an alliance formed by the northern kingdom of Israel with the pagan nation of Syria. And the Lord sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to reassure the king not to fear this, not to fear this alliance. The Lord is going to protect, is going to deliver Jerusalem. It will not fall to this alliance. And the Lord even offers to Ahaz a sign for his, he knows his, weak, his faith is weak, to strengthen his faith. And he says, any sign, any sign you want, as high as the heavens, as low as Sheol, I will answer. But Isaiah refuses to ask for a sign. He refuses to trust in the Lord. You see, this is because Ahaz has already decided what he planned to do. Ahaz was going to solve the problem himself. He decided that he was going to make his own alliance. He was going to make an alliance with the wicked Assyrian Empire rather than to trust the word of the Lord. And the Lord, true to his word, he did deliver Jerusalem. He did defend Jerusalem against this coalition. And actually, he used Assyria to defeat them. But because of Ahaz's unfaithfulness, Judah now has an even bigger problem. Now the Assyrians are coming after them. In fact, much of the Lord's judgment against the nations that we've read from chapter 13 on are carried out by the nation of Assyria. Assyria is the instrument that God uses for judgment. It's the hammer in the hand of God to strike these other nations that are rebelling against him. Now in chapter 36, 
Now the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. This chapter takes place about 30 years after the events of chapter 7. Wicked King Ahaz is dead. His son, Hezekiah, who's a good king, he has been reigning for 14 years. Both Israel and Syria have been defeated. They have fallen to Assyria years before. But Jerusalem still stands. And in this chapter, Assyria is on the brink of conquering Jerusalem. See, all the other cities in Judah, the fortified cities, they have already fallen. Jerusalem is the only one left. And this city is weak and, humanly speaking, helpless against the vastly more superior, the more powerful Assyrian army poised to invade them. They have hundreds of thousands of troops right on their border poised to invade. And this is what we read in chapter 36. This is a taunt. This is trash talk coming from the Assyrians against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this is the background for what we're about to read. So Isaiah chapter 36. Hear now the word of the living God. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities in Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against the land to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you, will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. 
until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his, hand, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hands? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebda, the secretary, and Joab, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their, with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are true words. These are history. This has happened to your people. And Lord, we pray now that you will speak to us through these words. Father, I pray that you will anoint my words. They will be your words. They will have your power. And I pray that each one of us will hear from you. We will hear a message. We will hear a message and give in confidence how we are to respond when we are taunted, when the enemy taunts us with this trash talk. Father, we pray above all, we will see you. And above all, you will be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in this chapter, we hear a taunt. A taunt from the Assyrian king against both the leaders and the people of Jerusalem. Now, humanly speaking, this taunt is not empty. The odds are, are overwhelming in the, the favor of Assyria. See, they, they had walked through all of Jerusalem's defenses. They have captured all these fortified cities that had defended Jerusalem. All that was left now was to capture the city itself. See, Judah had these fortified cities that were on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and these were a defense against the attack. These cities intended to provide a, a buffer and protection for the capital of Jerusalem. But these defenses have all failed. And there's nothing now, there's nothing now between the enemy and the capture of the city. And Sennacherib, he is the king of Assyria. He dispatches to Rabshakeh. See, Rabshakeh, this is a title. It was, it was a military officer or a political officer. And his mission is basically psychological warfare. See, through his taunts, through his intimidation, through his promises that, that life under the Assyrian rule will, be, will not be that bad, his goal is to get Jerusalem simply to surrender, to lay down their arms, to not put up a fight. This is much better for everyone not to fight a war. And this is why his taunts are in Hebrew, as we see in verse 11. He wants not only Hezekiah's officials to hear him, he wants the people of Jerusalem to hear them as well. He wants to break the will of the people to fight. He wants to get them to surrender. And this is classical wartime propaganda. Now, while this is a real event that happened to real people in history, I think behind Sennacherib's intimidation and behind the taunts of the Rabshakeh, we hear the words of God's ultimate enemy, our ultimate enemy, the ultimate enemy of God's people. We hear satanic words that have been repeated throughout history to God's people. And we see this same taunting even today. Even by those who are enslaved to God's power, or, 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 or enslaved to the power of the evil one. Satan is not very creative. See, he continues with the same tactics time and time again against God's people. So as is our custom, we're going to walk through this passage nearly verse by verse to uncover this demonic strategy behind the enemy's taunts the enemy's trash talk. And, and by understanding this, 
hopefully we can then protect ourselves from becoming victims of this strategy that we see here. So the first thing we, we need to ask when we look at it is what is the goal of this demonic strategy? What is the goal? What is the, the goal of this trash talk? Well, the goal is simple. The goal is to get us to renounce. Uh, to, the goal is to get us to, to abandon our trust in, Lord, in the Lord, to, to renounce our faith. The goal is to steal our faith. As we heard in our New Testament reading, Hebrews 11.1, 1, this defines what faith is. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, God has made promises, promises in his word, but the fulfillment of these promises are not yet seen. We don't have them in our hand right now. And the question is, are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust God's promises? Or are we going to trust what we see? Are we going to trust our own eyes? Trust the things that are seen versus the things that are unseen? And the enemy's strategy is for us to focus solely on the here and now. Focus solely on the things that are seen. And make the things that are unseen, make the, th- the things that are, of, that are of God, make them seem foolish. Make them seem as if they do not exist. And before we start to look at, at, at the way this strategy is applied in the taunt, I, I want you to take notice of the place where this confrontation between the Rabshakeh and Hezekiah's representatives, where this takes place. We see this in verse 2. It says, And the king of Assyria sent to Rabshakeh from Lachish, that was one of the fortified cities, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So this last part, the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This should sound familiar. This is the, the very same place in chapter 7, verse 3, that the Lord directed Isaiah to meet with King Ahaz. And what this detail does is it sets up a parallel for us. For the reader, Isaiah is intending for us to see this parallel between wicked Ahaz, who trusted in himself, trusted the Assyrians, and his son Hezekiah. question is, what is Hezekiah going to do? See, Ahaz did not have faith. Ahaz trusted only in what can be seen. In fact, it's because of what Ahaz did that Jerusalem is in the situation right now that they're in under the threat of the Assyrians. And the question is, will Hezekiah react the same way? Well, we'll have to wait till next week, Lord willing, to find out the answer. Verse 4 now is where we see the beginning of this taunt. It says, And the Rabshakeh said to him, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? And this taunt gets right to the point. See, it raises the question, what do you trust? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting? But even the way he asks the question, how the question is framed is part of this taunt. See, it's part of the psychological warfare that's being waged. Notice he refers to Hezekiah not as king, but simply by his name. Now, this would be a great insult. Could you imagine an ambassador going to another country and meeting with the king and not even acknowledging his, his title, just mentioning, just, just calling him by his name? You know, go into, go into the United Kingdom and, see, and meeting with the king and say, how you doing, Chuck? You know, that's kind of what it's doing. He's conveying the idea that King Hezekiah is not a king, that he has no authority, that he's not worthy of any respect. Conversely, look how he refers to Sennacherib. He refers to him as the great king of Assyria. So even this address is calculated. It's calculated to make God's people feel small. Remember, the Rabshak, as he's saying this, is surrounded by at least 180,000 warriors ready to ransack Jerusalem 
at his command. So this is what is seen. This is, this is, this is the visible. But what's the unseen? Well, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of God's covenant people. Hezekiah did not choose this. It's not his own doing. God places Hezekiah in this position. And he is a descendant of King David. King David is the one who God made a covenant with that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne, ruling God's people. And David himself. David himself is the example. Remember when David faced the giant Goliath? Everyone else sees this unbeatable giant, nearly 10 feet tall. But what's David see? David, through the eyes of faith, sees an uncircumcised Philistine that dared to defy the living God. And this is the enemy's taunt. See, he, he, he reframes the narrative. He changes definitions to make God's people feel small, to make God's people feel foolish. He'll make the Christian life look ridiculous, look ridiculous by definition. And there's no better example of this that we see today than the way the enemy will, will throw around the word science. You ever think about science? As if science, by definition, has to be opposed to faith, has to be opposed to Christianity. My friend, science is only possible in a rational world, which is only possible if there is a rational God who created that world. So the most unscientific, the most irrational idea is that random chaos somehow created the, the, the rational order that we observe in the universe. See, the Christian worldview, far from being opposed to science, is the very thing necessary to make science possible. And just like David, when he faced Goliath, he refused to let the unbelievers dictate the narrative of reality. He focused on God's promises, God's word, God's character. We too, we too must refuse to concede the narrative of reality to the enemy who taunts us. And we must stand firm on God's word as the true narrative describing true reality. And the enemy of God's people continues along these lines, minimizing Hezekiah and his worldview in verse 5. He says, do you know or do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And by mere words here, he's probably referring to Hezekiah's faith and Hezekiah's prayers, which we'll see in chapter 37. See, the Rabshakeh is trying to make Hezekiah's worldview, which is his faith, his trust in Yahweh, trying to make it seem ridiculous. He wants it to look absurd. He's saying, do you really think all this religious stuff is going to work in the real world? When I've got all these troops lined up against you, do you really think these prayers are going to mean anything? And don't we hear this same taunt all the time? Right? You really don't believe what's written in, in this, this ancient text? Come on. They were primitive. We know so much more now. We, they, they were so ignorant. That we know miracles are impossible. These are just accounts of people who are uneducated, unsophisticated, unscientific. How could you be so ignorant to follow that? My friends, this is just a bullying tactic. This is just a bullying tactic. Remember, the goal is to get us to abandon our faith. The goal is to get us to abandon God. And they're going to place immense pressure, social pressure, to get us to renounce the word of God. See, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Paul was considered a fool. Christ himself was mocked and despised. So why should we expect any different treatment, any better treatment? This is the enemy's tactic. So the Rabshakeh here is standing in front of a, of a mighty army from Assyria, 
that has just defeated every other nation in the region. And he proclaims the words of the Assyrian king. He says, in whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? So just picture yourself standing in this situation. You are surrounded by hundreds of thousands of wars. Every other nation has failed. And they're saying, who do you trust that you rebelled against me? It's so easy. If you're so easy for God's people to capitulate, it's so easy for them to be completely overwhelmed. It's so easy to think, this is reality. This is reality. All these troops, all this power against us. And this God, that's a fantasy. That's just a fairy tale. See, it's easy for us, sitting in this church, in relative safety, surrounded by other believers, to say, yeah, I have faith. I would never doubt God. I would never be like that, that evil King Ahaz. But it's quite another thing. Quite another thing when you're in the enemy's territory. Say you're in a, a college classroom, surrounded by very smart people, and a very smart professor, who tell you Christianity's a joke. Said It's absurd. Only foolish people will, will believe that. It's irrational. But it's even more than that. And in the old times, they used to say it's irrational, but it's harmless. But now they're saying not only is it irrational, it is immoral. If you believe the things that are written in that word, you are immoral. You are hateful. You are evil. That's what they're telling you. Is it easy to stand in that situation? I know a person who was recently nominated to participate in a, in a, a prestigious secular program. And this per, person would get great experiences and meet influential leaders. And during the in, 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 this person was a Christian, and during the interview process, the person was asked what they thought was the biggest problem facing society. And in, in your opinion, what is the solution? Well, the person said, well, I think the biggest problem is, is all the division that we see in the world today. And they said, yeah, that's good, that's good, we see that. What's your solution? The person went out batting an eye, said, the gospel. The gospel is the only way to solve this problem. It must be, it would have, and, and it took courage to do this. This is what the person truly believed. This was automatic. Well, you can see what the secular people would think. They're kind of looking at that. And they're saying that it'd be much easier to give a bland and, 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 a, and a non-offensive answer. But my friends, if you're a Christian, each one of us will be in that situation at some time. A situation where we will face ridicule. We will face hostility if we stand up for the truth that is in Scripture. And the temptation will be so strong, so strong to compromise. Just to compromise a little. To tell them what they want to hear. To trust in what can be seen and abandon what is not seen. Basically abandon our faith. That will be the temptation each one of us will face. Verse 6 displays Sennacherib's complete lack of understanding of the man of faith. See, Sennacherib thinks that there must be a secular answer to Hezekiah's refusal to surrender. See, he can't understand the way Hezekiah thinks. He thinks that Hezekiah is, is looking to another nation to say, that must be what it is. Because this is exactly what Ahaz did. When Ahaz faced a threat from Israel and Syria, he made this alliance with Assyria. So that's what they're thinking. So this is the way the natural man is to think. To rely on his cleverness, to rely on his cunning. And this Sennacherib understands. Because this is the way Sennacherib thinks. This is what he would do if he was in this situation. But he knows, he knows that Egypt is too weak. Egypt is no match for Assyria. So Sennacherib's words in verse 6 are actually true. He says, behold, who are you trusting? In Egypt? That broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on? I love the imagery here. He's talking about you know, if you, a broken staff. You put it, you're going to get stabbed. You're going to get hurt. Well, that's what he's saying. You're going to get hurt if you rely on Egypt. He says, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust on him. If you rely on Pharaoh, you're going to get hurt. That's what he's saying. And it's perfectly natural. It's perfectly natural for the natural man to use his ingenuity, to use his cunning, to find a solution to this problem of this attack that they're facing. 
And, and one way of doing it is to make alliances with other nations. This is the way the natural man thinks. Sennacherib understands this thinking, even though he knows that this option will not work. He knows that the Assyrian army is way too powerful. But what Sennacherib doesn't understand, what he can't understand, is the man of faith. This makes no sense to him. They can't understand a person who trusts in a, in a God you can't see, a supernatural God. This makes no sense to the natural man. It just seems it, they, they can't comprehend how anyone could do this. Sennacherib does not understand the Lord. See, the word translated as Lord here, all capitals, this, in this text, this is using the covenant name. This is using the name Yahweh. And Sennacherib here, he, he's a pagan, and he's thinking like a pagan. He's thinking that Yahweh is just another one of the, the countless local deities that he has beat, that, that all the other, the other countries have these local gods that have utterly failed to protect their nation, and that Assyria has conquered. And he says in verse 7, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Jerusalem and Jerusalem, uh, and Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? See, Sennacherib and, and Rabshakeb, they have no understanding of the actions Hezekiah did when he removed the high places. So, so basically what happened is there were these high places there, and Hezekiah removed them. These are places where they were worshiping. And the high places were, were an abomination to the Lord. He removed them because the Lord hated these places. And what these places represent is syncretism. This is, this is a melding together of worship of the true God and worship of the false pagan gods. See, the, 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 the true gods were worshipped, or, or I should say the pagan gods were worshipped on these high places. And the high places were where pagan worship took place. And the apostate Judah, they thought what we're going to do is we're going to worship our God the same way everyone else worships. We want to be just like our neighbors. So they have a different God's name. We're going to worship our God this same way on the high places. And they weren't worshiping, they weren't worshiping Malk, they weren't worshiping Kamosh, they were actually worshiping Yahweh. So they thought they were being faithful. But don't you see that, that worshiping Yahweh the way all the other gods are worshiping is actually a denial of the uniqueness of God? See, what they do, by worshiping the same way everyone else is, they're saying he's just one of many gods versus he is the God. He is the only God, the only true God of all people. So in doing this, they actually rejected a God-centered worldview. And they're subconsciously adopting the pagan worldview. See, God's people were thinking like their pagan neighbors. Yahweh was just a local God to them versus the God, the only God, the God for everyone and everything. My friends, we face the same temptation today, don't we? Right? People will tell to you, if, you know, if Jesus works for you, that's great. If Jesus is great, I'm, I'm happy for you. But don't force him on others. Don't force him on me. Other people have their own gods. They have their own way. If Jesus is the way for you, if Jesus is the way for the Christian, that's great. But other people, you know, Muhammad is the way for the Muslim. Vishnu is the way for the Hindu. Buddha is the way for the Buddhists. And if you say that Jesus is the only way, you are being arrogant. You are being intolerant. You are being hateful to say Jesus is the only way. That's what people will say. And there are many who claim to be Christian who hold this attitude. But what they're doing is they're denying a Christian worldview. They have a pluralistic worldview. That's their worldview behind it. They're saying we're Christian, and they're trying to fit it into that worldview. It's kind of like that coexist sticker that makes Jesus just one of many other ways that we see. But that's not what Jesus says. The Christian worldview believes Jesus' words in John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. 
I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a universal claim. You cannot, you cannot square that as one of many. Jesus is the only way. And Hezekiah here is recognized as a good king, as a faithful king, because he removed these high places. He recognizes that they were pagan. They were idolatrous. And he required that people worship God the way that God had prescribed in his word, which at that time was in the temple alone. And my friends, this is a temptation that as Christians, we are going to face. For example, there's a temptation in the church, in the church to adopt a a corporate, a capitalism, a marketing worldview to the church. Run the church like a business. See the pastor as a CEO, the elders as a board of directors, and the congregation as customers. And Jesus as a commodity. Jesus as a product to be hawked by competing vendors. So you need to get your, you need to get your, your niche in the market. But my friends, when we act this way, we are contradicting the very gospel that we preach. And we're as much denying our Lord that we claim to worship as Peter did on the night he denied, he denied Christ during the, resurrection, or during the crucifixion. How about Christians in the business world? In the business world, we will be at a disadvantage. There will be pressure to work on the Sabbath. I've got to meet this deadline. I can't take, I can't take the Sabbath off. Or I, I need to make that extra bit of profit, so I need to work that day. There will be pressure to be less than truthful or outright lie to cover your company. And I remember I, when I worked in the secular world, I had that pressure. You know, there was things the company did I could not tell the customer. If the customer asked, I had to either lie or, or be silent. Those are situations that we all face ourselves in. How about in our personal lives? There's pressure not to tithe, not to financially support the work of the kingdom. And why? Like you say, well, well you, know, you know, I have so many expenses. You know, inflation is, everything's getting more expensive, so I've got to cut down. So we tend to give God last, put God last. Only if there's something left over, maybe we'll give something to God. What's Scripture command? Scripture commands first fruits. We put God first. God doesn't get our leftovers. This is an acknowledgement that God owns everything. It's so easy for us to say, well, I can just give up on that. Verses 8 through 9, we see more mocking. And Rabshakeh is saying, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're even able to find riders for them. And he's mocking them. He's mocking the lack of men they have to fight. He's saying with so few wars, you cannot even repulse a single unit under a single captain in the Assyrian army. See, if they couldn't even find 2,000 riders, how could they have any chance against the more than 180,000 Assyrian warriors? Uh, this further highlights the, the sheer hopelessness of this situation from a human perspective. And verse 10 is where we see perhaps Sennacherib's greatest blasphemy. Verse 10, he says, Moreover, is it without the Lord, Yahweh, that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh has said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Do you see the wickedness here? Sennacherib is violating the third commandment. He is taking the Lord's name in vain. And why is he doing this? He's doing it as an attempt to demoralize the people of Judah. Basically, he's claiming Yahweh's on our side. Yahweh's on the Assyrian side. He's actually directing the attack. And again, this is part of the the psychological warfare. Get them to think that God has abandoned them. And he's attempting to manipulate the people by claiming that he actually has a word from the Lord, that the Lord has spoken to him. He's trying to get them to question their understanding of God and his will for them. Again, this is a common tactic of the enemy. This is a common taunt. Remember the goal. The the demonic goal 
is to get people, to get us to lose our faith, to get us to abandon our trust in God. The goal is to get us to question God's goodness, get us to question his love, question his mercy, question his holiness, question his justice. And the tactic is to get us to question our understanding of God. Am I really understanding God or do I got this completely wrong? That is, that is his tactic. And this is why, my friends, knowing Scripture is essential. It is so important. Scripture is where God has spoken to us most clearly. And Scripture is our only infallible guide for, this, for faith. And, and Scripture is our only source of knowledge of God's will, our only source of knowledge of God's character. And our enemy will attempt to confuse us, confuse us about God. And he'll often attribute his blasphemous words actually to God himself. I remember a liberal minister that I frequently, that, that, that I have some interactions with, he posts this meme on Facebook, which is a cartoon. He has a cartoon Jesus. And Jesus is speaking with a bunch of people that are holding Bibles. And these are to, to represent what he calls uh, literalists. That's what he refers to people who believe the Bible. He calls us literalists. And in the cartoon, the cartoon Jesus is saying to him, the problem with you guys, people like us who believe the Bible, the problem with you guys is you look to Scripture to tell you what love means. I, the cartoon Jesus, I look to love to tell you what Scripture means. And do you see just how demonic this meme is? See, basically what it does, it rejects Jesus' own words spoken in Scripture and completely contradicts these words by way of this cartoon Jesus. See, my friends, Jesus defines for us what it means to love. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. See, according to Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, love is actually keeping God's commandments, which are found in Scripture. But what Satan does is he says that we must use what he calls the hermeneutic of love. This is what they'll use, the hermeneutic of love to interpret Scripture. So basically, love is not defined the way it is in Scripture. It's basically implied. It's, it's smuggled in. And what they mean by love is being nice, being accepting of all people, regardless of whatever sin they commit. Sin as defined by Scripture. Don't you see, if you, you separate from Scripture, you're lost. You can define it however you want. And I saw a great response to this meme, which is another meme. And it had a picture of Satan. And Satan is wearing this mask that has a face of Jesus on it. And so, so Satan is speaking and saying, Jesus is saying these words. And this is the words that it says, the best thing is when you realize you're not broken and you don't need fixing. My friend, this is a satanic lie. You see, God, through his common grace, he convicts us of our sin. We all know it. We all feel it. The problem is we don't like it. We don't like to be convicted by sin. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And there are two responses that we can have to this discomfort. The first response, the Christian response, is to repent, to, re to embrace the gospel of grace, to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel, as the payment for this sin, payment that was done on the cross as our substitute, and accept this forgiveness, this forgiveness of our sins. And this is what brings us true healing. This is what brings us true peace with God. But sadly... Sadly, the more common response is to desensitize ourselves to this conviction of sin. We tell ourselves, I'm okay the way I am. We tell ourselves there's no need for repentance. We tell ourselves there's no need for grace. We tell ourselves there is no need for, there, there is no such thing as sin. And this is the temptation in Sennacherib's taunt. 
that the Lord sent him against them. I'm speaking for the Lord, and the Lord is against you. Don't you, don't you see how easy it is for us to fall into this trap? Now, the ironic thing, the ironic thing is, unbeknownst to Sennacherib, there's actually some truth in his statement. Now, Sennacherib start, doesn't believe it. He's saying this only as part of the psychological warfare in order to break these religious spirits of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Sennacherib doesn't believe in Yahweh. He certainly doesn't think that it's Yahweh who sent him. Sennacherib is doing what he wants to do. He believes he is the one who's calling the shots. But the truth is, the truth is that God is actually using Assyria, using Assyria as his instrument of judgment on all these wicked nations and using him as his instrument of discipline on his own people. But this realization, rather than dishearten God's people, it actually should further strengthen their faith because the truth is that God is sovereign and any opposition that they face is ultimately for their good, the good of his beloved people. In verse 11, we have evidence that this psychological warfare is actually working. Because the officials asked the Rabshakeh, says, speak to us in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Right? If this were simple, uh, simply an official uh, negotiation, they would have spoken to him in Aramaic. That was the official language. And this would have been also a further way of humiliating. We're not going to talk in your language. We're going to talk in our language. You're going to learn our language to know what we're saying. But that's not the goal. See, the goal of this course is not to negotiate, but is to break the will of the people. And this is why he speaks in Hebrew. And it, it must be working because the officials would not have asked him not to speak in Hebrew, to speak in Aramaic. And at this point, then, the Rabshakeh basically ignores the request of these officials. And he speaks directly to the people. And, and, and when he goes to the people, he's using a carrot and a stick approach to get the people. Basically, he wants to, he wants to drive a wedge between the people and Hezekiah. He wants to drive a wedge between the people and God. He wants to get them to abandon Hezekiah, abandon Yahweh. So in verse 12, he tells the people, he tells them they're doomed. And he uses a very graphic description of the desperation the people will be in as a result of the siege of Jerusalem. And the purpose of using this very graphic description is to terrorize them, to get them to see that they are in a terrible situation and things, horrible things are about to happen to them. That's what he wants. He wants to get them panicked at this point. They're looking at these 180,000 troops out there and this is what's going to happen to them. Then in verses 13 to 15, what he does, he places the blame for this terrible situation, not on the Assyrians, not on their army, but he places the blame on Hezekiah. And why? Because Hezekiah is telling the people to trust in Yahweh. He's basically saying, God's the one to fall. Hezekiah and and, and Yahweh are are, are the reason you're in this situation. And the goal is for them to blame Hezekiah and to blame God for this intense fear that they are now feeling. And again, he's hoping to drive this wedge between the people and the king and between the people and their God. He's trying to get them to abandon God. That is their goal. And then when, when, when they're in this situation, then when, they, when he has the people terrified of their fate, then he offers them the carrot. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. He offers them a way of escape, a way out of this terrible situation. He says, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Basically, surrender. That's what he's saying. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. He's saying there is a way out. You don't have to suffer. All you need to do is surrender. 
You don't need to fight. Everything will be okay. It won't be so bad if you surrender. You'll be able to eat fruit. You'll be able to eat your fruit from your vine, drink water from your cistern, as opposed to what they will eat and drink, as they said in verse 12, if they choose to resist. So you see what he's doing? He's saying that, that you have a way out. If you just surrender, it will not be so bad. But notice there's a catch. There's a catch here. See, they'll have their physical needs taken care of. And, and this actually may have been true. He may have been telling the truth there. But verse 17 says that they will be taken out of the land and brought to another land. So what's this mean? To be exiled from the land. Land that was given to them by God. They would lose their distinctiveness as the people of God. They would become assimilated into the, into the Assyrian Empire. They will become like everybody else. That's the catch. And this was a strategy for stability in the empire. What they would basically do in the Babylonians is the same thing. They would move people. They would separate people. Move them so that they lose their, their individual and religious identity and thus are less likely to resist the empire. They would be kept comfortably, physically, but they would lose their spiritual identity. They would abandon Yahweh. They're kept, spirit, they're kept physically comfortable, but spiritually they lose their identity. My friends, this is the same strategy Satan is using to us right now in the United States. This is the most dangerous for us in the affluent West, in the affluent United States of America. Author Rod Dreher has coined the term soft totalitarianism. Anyone heard that term? Soft totalitarianism. Yeah, some of you. And I think he's onto something. He's saying the West is heading not to a hard totalitarianism like you see in Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia or, or North Korea where people could be arrested and killed for opposition to the government. No. Rather, he sees a soft totalitarianism where people will not be forced but will actually voluntarily give up their rights in exchange for comfort, in exchange for access to certain perks and advantages in society. For example, example people will be given free education through college, as long as that education is in accordance with the ideology of the state. People will be given free health care as long as you forfeit your individual treatment decisions and buy into the philosophies of those who are footing the bill. You'll have access to, to uh, technologies and comforts of the modern age as long as you view, your, your view follows the party line. The censors will be censured and, and lose all access, cut off. And under soft totalitarianism, the state takes care of all your needs. The state becomes your de facto God. And any challenges to its authorities or claims to ultimate authority, such as a claim to biblical Christianity, will not be tolerated. In fact, the state will tell you what reality is. And aren't we seeing that now? The state will tell us reality that men and women are interchangeable. You could be a man or you could be a woman. Something that seems to be completely obvious, the state is telling us. That's the new reality. And if you reject that new truth, you will not be able to participate. You will lose your access to these things. And you can, can you see how this threat is so much more dangerous than direct totalitarianism? See, persecution that's encountered in totalitarian systems, that was encountered in ancient Rome, actually strengthens people's faith. If you're thrown in jail, you will cling to hope in God. You will cling to that supernatural relief during this time of suffering. If it's, if, if, even if it's simply the hope of the eternal rest that you'll have when you leave this world. But what we see here, the temptation we face, is, is so much more dangerous. Because there's always that carrot. There's always that carrot. If you give in, and it can only seem as, as a very small compromise, but if you give in, 
You'll be given physical, you'll be given the physical things you need. The physical suffering will go away. Not the spiritual, but the physical suffering will go away. See, the spiritual suffering will continue to get worse and worse every time we compromise. This is, this is why, from a, from a physical perspective, from, a, from an affluence perspective, things have never been better in our country, right? If you think about all the, all the gadgets we have, all the, all the wealth we have, not, things have never been better from a physical perspective. But spiritually, spiritually, we have never been more miserable. Look at the suicide rates. Look at the depression rates. Look at the substance abuse. Look at the general state of hopelessness in our society. You see, spiritually, we are, we are miserable, and in these verses, Sennacherib is declaring that the Assyrian Empire is the ultimate authority. The Assyrian Empire is God. In verses 18 through 20, Rabshakeh attempts really to put the nails in the coffin here of any hope they may have in Yahweh for deliverance. And he's basically saying that all the other gods, all the other gods in the nation, they didn't help them. So why should you think that Yahweh is going to help you? And by this argument, they betray that they do not understand about Yahweh. They don't understand his distinctiveness as the one true God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through this chapter, when I hear the trash talk by Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh, it seems so familiar. I see the same taunts today. I see it all around, and it causes frustration. It causes fear. It leads to this temptation to compromise. It leads to the temptation to deny Christ, to live by what is seen in the here and now and not what is unseen in Christ. And remember, remember, this is the goal of the enemy's taunt. The, this is the goal of the enemy's trash track. The goal is for us to abandon our faith. The goal is for us to maybe, if we don't abandon it, to, to compartmentalize it. Only have it on, on Sunday. You can do that on Sunday and it can't affect anything else. It can't affect the way you live your life Monday through Saturday. It, it, it can't become a worldview. It can't affect every single aspect of our lives. Simply what they want us to do is become indistinguishable from unbelievers. And truthfully, look around at the church. Look at Christian, people who claim to be Christian. Many times we are undistinguishable from unbelievers. And my friend, each one of us at some point in our lives will face these taunts. You may be facing these taunts right now in your lives. And what are we to do? How are we to react? Is there any hope? How do we protect ourselves from abandoning or compartmentalizing our faith? Well, I think we see the answer in verses 21 and 22. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rebshakim. So how did they, these officials react to these taunts? What was Hezekiah's command to them to react? He says they were silent. See, Hezekiah said, do not answer them. But instead, what they did is they tore their clothes. This is a sign of mourning. This is a sign of repentance. This is a sign of trust in the Lord. And I said, this is our application. This is our application. We, too, are to be silent against the devil's taunts. We're not to answer him. See, he's not looking for information. There is no attempt at dialogue here. He is only seeking to destroy us. There is no goodwill. There is no attempt to learn. We are to be silent and we are to ignore him. Just like Christ was silent before his accuser. He knew that they were just trying to trap him. He knew they weren't trying to learn from him. So he was silent. 
And what we do then is we go to God. We turn to him. We turn to him in prayer. We turn to him in repentance. See, rather than allow the, the devil to draw us away from God, we actually use us to move closer to him, to rely on him, to trust in him. And we ask for him to strengthen our faith and strengthen and give us the grace to withstand the taunts and give us the grace to remain faithful to him and, and, and his call upon our lives. This is what we do. We, we, we have to actually react in the exact opposite way. We have to go towards Christ, not away from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there's so much against us, so much coming against us, so much temptation for us to compromise. And Father, I pray for every single one who hears my words, who hears my voice. Father, I pray for your grace. I pray for your spirit to allow us to to trust in you, to rely on you. If there are any here who do not know you, Lord, I pray you will change that. You will regenerate them. Give them your grace. Allow them to receive and rest upon Christ alone. But for those of us who belong to you, Father, help us to realize that this is real, to trust in your word, to know that you are more real than anything that we see, to give us the faith and strength in our faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory.